trying to get back to the basics of great products. Power comes from sharing information. I try to convince people to slow down. Free. Yeah. Open. This is the Soak Dice Podcast. Hi again. Welcome to the second ever Soaked by Slush podcast episode. My name is William von der Palen, and with me in Copenhagen again is Isaac Rautio. Hi, Isaac. Here I am again in Copenhagen. Still here. Yes. Nice to see you, William. It's nice to do another episode of the Soaked by Slush podcast. It is indeed. It is indeed. And we have a very, very interesting guest uh, once again. Uh, I think this is going to be the recurring topic of this podcast. So maybe at some point I just I stop introducing guests extremely interesting and we just take that as a given. But uh, with us is uh, Kathleen Holloway. Uh, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. I'm so glad to be here. Yeah, before we dive into into it um, even more, could you maybe... Tell our listeners uh, briefly uh, who you are, what you've done, so we can set the scene a little bit. Absolutely. So uh, my name is Caitlin Holloway. Uh, I am a seasoned people and culture executive. I've worked in uh, tech and the startup world for uh, about 10 years. And I recently transitioned to uh, a new role in venture capital. So I started out at the beginning of this year, moving over to initialized capital and um, a, a small little fun fact is I have actually just recently transitioned out and I'm working on a new project uh, in in the venture space as, as an investor. Uh, but you are catching me at a very interesting time where details are not uh, at the ready. So I am I'm excited to come back and share what this new adventure is. But uh, I think the short version is I'm, I'm a seasoned people and culture executive um, and now an investor. Yeah, we start off with a cliffhanger right away, but uh, yeah, definitely uh, eager to hear more about upcoming projects as well. Um, do you see that as a trend? Um, because I, I've been following some some firms now in, in the venture space, and it seems like um, we're moving more and more away from the, you know, only looking at the numbers side, only validating business models, only validating doing some due diligence on on cap tables or whatever, and we're going more into actually you know, investigating teams uh, and, and understanding teams, understanding brands, and, and we're bringing in like more marketing people, more HR people, and, and just diversifying the investor pool. Uh, or am I right? <laughs> You're absolutely right. And I, I am so, so excited to see the tide shift this way. Um, and if we're being honest, I really do think that, that COVID has a lot to do with that. Um, it was a trend that we were seeing uh, before the pandemic, uh, but I think it's just been absolutely accelerated since. Um, mostly because, as as we have seen over the last you know seven, eight, nine months now, um, team and people, especially uh, the the founders, the the leaders within the company, those are the ones that have you know that has been the biggest determining factor of success and survival. Uh, through really, really hard times, especially uh, over here in America. So I personally am very excited and, and grateful uh, for this trend. Um, but it, it's absolutely, uh, I, th- I think, necessary um, as we are funding um, new teams and as we are building and growing new, entirely new industries uh, in this kind of new chapter, whatever this is going to be for the world, um, that really is focused on on more than just good ideas. Good ideas um, 
hard to understand, but they they are easier to come by uh, than than really incredible leaders and um, and their ability to build fantastic teams and cultures. Yeah, exactly, exactly, and it seems it seems that's that's the case. And um, yeah, I think it's everyone's luck, and and hopefully that'll lead also to, you know, investors looking uh, more broadly at the at the available, you know, at the selection of companies out there, and and not maybe just banking companies similar to other companies that have been banked or or whatever. Uh, so it's it's probably good for the whole ecosystem um, to to get this more diverse investing pool as well. I completely agree. You're speaking my language. <laughs> Great. Uh, yeah, we agreed before the episode to to yeah, uh, looking at your background. Obviously, um, with with the companies you've been working with, we we talked about uh, you know uh, at least partly talking about people and culture, uh, which obviously is very uh, interesting. And maybe there's like two aspects, or there are many aspects you can take. But but looking at our audience, maybe we can we we have the like smaller companies, and then we have the more of the enterprise level uh, companies. Mm-hmm. Um, but maybe we could start off with you know startups and maybe going even further back maybe we could start by just defining what culture is because it used to be like everyone talked about hr and that was like processes and like contracts and how much paid leave you get and how much maternal leave you get and then then it's kind of there's been a shift towards people and culture is like the more trendy term now and it I, it seems it's it's more fitting but if you could maybe define that so we 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 are talking about the same thing before we start talking about it absolutely i it's it's funny i've been in this world now for um you know like i said o- over a decade and I've been asked this question so many times, um, and I, I feel like if you were to take all of my clips and sound bites and put them next to each other, I don't know if I've ever given the same definition twice. Um, so I, I agree, it's helpful uh, for the context of our conversation to to identify it. Um, so today's definition of people and culture for me uh, is is inclusive. Um, It really encapsulates the entire uh, employee experience and the employer experience. And so, um, you know, taking it way, way back, I, my first principles and and my understanding and development of my own personal philosophies around people and around culture uh, really started at Pixar Animation Studios. So uh, that was midway in my career when I when I worked in in film and I worked at the studio there for five years um, during a really interesting time in that company's history uh, when they were going through the the merger um, acquisition by Disney and at the time uh, you know Steve Jobs w- was still present and active um, Ed Catmull was our, our president um, and they, they went through an incredible uh, transformation um, and yet retained who they were through that process. And I think that you can still feel that today in, you know, when you compare the output uh, from each of the different studios, they still feel very much different, although they are part of the same family. Um, and so learning and watching as an employee at Pixar, as they were going through this evolution, um, they were so careful and so intentional about defining who they were through this process so that they could retain their magic, right? They could retain the things that made their their film, their product so unique and powerful. And so, you know, starting first with, with a mission or a vision, um, 
I don't believe that Pixar ever had a stated mission or vision, uh, but I, I knew that I wasn't getting up to go to work at a cartoon factory every day. Uh, it was simple enough to be like, oh, I, I work in animation and I and I go and I work in film. Uh, but every morning I woke up knowing that, you know, one of the things that we were meant to do was to tell incredible stories, which meant bringing someone into a dark room for 90 minutes with the hope that they feel to hope that they feel something. Um, and that that is a really, really powerful thing to align with and to, to get up out of bed every morning and be motivated to go into work. Um, so energized to do the work, whether you, you know, were, were wrangling calendars for a, a busy producer or, you know, collecting uh, special almonds for a director or, you know, as a storyboard artist working on the actual, uh, you know, cells that were would wind up on screen, working with the voice talent. Um, it didn't matter your role. Everyone at Pixar was so deeply passionate about what it was that we were building and how we were impacting the world that it made it really easy to get along to focus. Um, now, that's not to say that Pixar did everything right or perfectly, but at that point in my career, and I, I can say with pretty high confidence to this day, they, that is one of the best employer cultures I have ever experienced. Um, they did so much right. Um, and so having really kind of cut my teeth there and, and understanding and learning uh, by being um, on the receiving end of that culture, being a part of that culture that, that was so successful and was thriving, um, I then, when I moved into tech, took a lot of those first principles and, and some of those philosophies that I had begun to develop there and started applying them to, to young companies. And so um, when I think about culture in the startup sense, um, it really, at its most basic, it's the who and the how. So who you invite into the organization and how we ask one another to operate together. Taking it kind of a step further, you look at all of the different identities within that culture um, to understand how you can catalyze change. So culture happens with or without our permission. Um, it is something that develops organically um, or with intention, um, often cases both. Um, so the, the more you can understand or, or create a blueprint of your culture as a founder, as a leader in the organization, um, even as an employee, to understand that that blueprint or the, the genetic makeup of what makes you you, what makes the collective you, uh, the better you can grow it with intention. Um, and so when I, when I think about cultural identity, um, I view it in three different buckets. At the top there, you have your, your um, company identity, which is essentially, you know, your mission, your vision, your goals, you know, so this is stating, I'm Caitlin, I work at such and such company, and this is what we do. This is how we plan on doing it. That is your second phase of, of identity, which is more of the operational identity. So the how, how you are choosing to work together. So these are your, your values, your policies, your frameworks, all of those, those business things that help you operate and, and produce, right? And so now you have your North Star, your mission, your vision, you have your values, you're asking people to show up in a certain way, um, and you're, you're sharing kind of, again, those first principles around how you want to operate, and then the organizational, like, how we are going to get the work done, uh, you know, every day, how we're going to show up, what your meeting cadence is, how we're going to measure and drive performance. All of those things are in those first two layers of identity. Um, and those things are the responsibility first and foremost of the founder, and then the leadership team that they put in place. 
everyone else at the company looks to the leaders of the organization to identify and articulate and re-articulate and evolve those things in those two layers of identity so that we know how to get things done. You show up to work every day, you know what you're doing, you know how to do it, and you know who you're doing it with. Simple. A lot of companies stop there. That's where you put in all of the like, you know, when we talk about culture loosely, everyone's like, okay, so it's, it's the who and the how, right? But the reality is, is this third layer of identity and, and cultural identity for me lives far below the surface. This is the deep, meaty, really fun stuff. And this is what I call our true identity. And our true identity has a mix of all of these incredible things that, again, occur more organically um, and are harder to pin down. So, for example, in our true identity, there are things like traditions, how you celebrate wins and mourn losses, um, our unspoken rules, um, our unstated values. So if we have our stated values living up in, in the operational identity, our held values, that's the difference between what you say you're going to do and what you actually do, and then you measure the gap between those things, the, that is a great measure of how, how successful or thriving your, your company or your culture is. And so all of those really meaty things at the bottom, feelings, emotion, um, uh, feedback, conversation, rituals, all of those things, um, including storytelling, live at the bottom. And the challenge with the, the true identity part of culture is that typically uh, no one knows who's accountable for this. No, nobody knows who's responsible for this. And so when something isn't going well, it's really easy for people to point to one another. The employees are pointing to the leadership team. The leadership team is pointing to the employees. Everyone feels like it's not theirs to own or to control. And so what ends up happening is when something doesn't go well, uh, leadership comes in and they, they try to control and they try to dictate what those things are. They try to establish those things because something's not going right. You have a culture of, of where people are gossiping or feedback is being delivered indirectly to people you know, behind closed doors or not to the individual that it's supposed to go to. Um, you know, people feel excluded. Um, the, the whole diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging stuff sits in this, this meaty third layer of identity, right? And so when, when things go wrong, the more people try to control it because it, it doesn't feel like it's working, uh, the more the, the system will reject it. And so in a, the, the flip side of this coin is in a successful culture, all of those incredible things at the bottom, they are happening organically with leadership keeping a mindful eye on the influencers. So who are the culture carriers within the organization that are helping these things move along um, successfully? And so you amplify and you empower these people, these people meaning the people within your organization, to help evolve and change. And those things will help inform the, the top layers of identity and vice versa. And so when you, as a leader or as a founder, have a better understanding of this blueprint, this identity uh, or, or cultural DNA roadmap or blueprint, uh, the better you can you can navigate and catalyze change in, in the positive and amplify the things that are really working for you. And that, I think, to date is the longest definition I have ever given <laughs> on what I apologize. <laughs> it might be the best. Yeah, it was great. It was really good. We didn't want to it's, interrupt you. No, not was, at all. That was very, yeah. that was very good. That was very interesting. I, it, it seems as if you're saying that, uh, I mean, you emphasize the role of leadership in, in sort of creating or facilitating this, this culture, uh, the creation of the culture, but it, it seems as if like, if, it, if you want it to happen in a healthy way, 
it has to be allowed to emerge and not decreed upon uh, whoever. And it's but but it's still sort of uh, um, the role of leadership in that uh, in facilitating that sort of emergence sounds sounds like the main point here, sort of. Absolutely. So yes, leadership at the end of the day is accountable and responsible for the culture, all of it, end to end. Uh, but the, the parts that, that are required of them or they are responsible for um, outlining and creating clarity um, are the, those first two layers. Um, and, and oftentimes what you see is when those are, are broken or ineffective or maybe misaligned, that's when you see that that true identity or that third layer um, really start to, to react. Um, and that is when things um, kind of lo lose their focus or, you know, you, you will hear words like this culture is toxic uh, because you don't have that clarity and alignment up top. And so if you don't have clarity and alignment up top, um, of course, it's going to be felt and, and seen in the organism. And so, um, you know, like I said, usually what ends up happening is, is they, they come down into the muck and the mire and, uh, and, and then they try to stop it. You know, oh, you, you're gossiping or you're talking poorly about my, my colleague on the executive team saying that they're a bad leader or, or that, you know, the, the CEO doesn't know what they're doing. Um, so the problem is you talking, not let me really investigate how I can be a better leader. Um, so there, there's a lot of play between those identities, which is why I have them identified um, or labeled separately, uh, because they, they have to work in Zapotico, but they, um, people often confuse which one they should be focused on, because uh, they're, they're addressing the symptom, not the cause. And it sounds like, it also sounds like uh, when talking about culture, simplicity isn't always uh, the way to go with. I mean, based on the definition, like how complex it is, because everyone is different and you're, you're dealing with some hundreds, sometimes thousands of people who are different. And, and, uh, and so, so if you, if you're, um, if you want to start and create a culture or, or facilitate the creation of a culture, what are some, uh, what are some ways in which you can, you can, uh, I don't want to say methods again because that feels like reducing it somehow into some uh, some lesser type of understanding of humans. Like, do do you some? How much of this is sort of raw data you can put on a spreadsheet, and how much of this is uh, more more uh, difficult to define? Both. It's both. Uh, so you you can't. Uh, manage what you can't measure, what you don't measure, right? So, mm. data is a huge part of of. of sentiment on, on what's happening in our true identity, right? So, uh, you know, soliciting that feedback in a, in a, um, in a more comprised and intentional way is really important. So you can't just talk to one or two employees and, and take anecdotal feedback and say, oh, I'm going to, I'm going to change, you know, X, Y, and Z based on these one or two opinions. When you have, you know, a larger group of people that may be feeling a different way, um, then you run the risk of just either, you know, paving those cow paths, meaning the relationships that you already have or the trusted relationships that exist, um, or two, just listening to the, you know, the loudest voice in the room or the squeakiest wheel. Um, so collecting data, um, holistically being really intentional about how you collect those data points and, and better understand the sentiment is important. Um, and there are a number of tools out there in which you can do that. Um, but but when you're really thinking about building a culture uh, or building a company from the ground up and being intentional about that that culture, um, the funny thing is, is I, 
I've been studying culture, you know, for, for 10 years, um, exclusively and probably my entire life, uh, you know, more anecdotally or, um, you know, just independently. So I, I have a lot of words to say, but at the end of the day, um, and I know that we aren't supposed to use this word that much, but it really is a feeling and it's that, that connection and that connectivity. And so understanding, um, and being connected to the people in your organization must come first. And so I can give you frameworks and I can give you best practices and I can start with, you know, an exercise around what makes a great mission statement, what makes a great vision statement, how do we define our values, what makes successful values. And I could talk about the founder toolkit until I'm blue in the face. I have, I have templates out the wazoo, uh, which are helpful to organize your thoughts as, you know, a, a young founder or a young business is trying to establish itself. And, and those tools are super handy, right? They, they are great. It helps you find clarity in your thoughts um, because typically a founder is, is being pulled mentally, emotionally in a million different directions around product market fit and, and sales and product adoption and building a team and all of the, these other things that their investors um, are requiring of them uh, to, to do in a short period of time. Uh, and so the, the, the weight of, oh, I need to think about culture now too, uh, can be fairly overwhelming, um, especially when you don't know where to start or when you're just a few people and, and you say, oh, well, I'll, I'll worry about that later. Um, but the reality is, is, yeah, exactly. Like, or I've worked with them before or know each other. So it's fine. Um, but the, the, the healthiest thing that you can do is talk about it early and talk about it often, even if it is, you know, simple or uh, not yet defined, um, that's okay. It's about the, the really early culture definition really is about the working dynamic and relationship that, that you have on the team and how you're, um, you know, ensuring that you are giving those feedback cycles and that your, your communication lines are open and that you are focused on the right things. And so, you know, really early culture, I know it sounds silly or even heartless, but a lot of it is around communication and goal setting, um, which doesn't feel like any of that meaty stuff that I was talking about um, because you're busy building. And so you, you don't, if you don't have that focus and alignment, even just between two co-founders um, or an, you know, a founder and an early team member, uh, you're, you're going to hit that wall of this isn't working. Um, as opposed to, you know, in a, in a larger organization where you, you start to have a, a coup or a mutiny and people are like, this place sucks, or I, I'm frustrated. <laughs> um, but in those early days when, it, when a culture isn't, isn't going well or isn't developing well, it's because you have a communication gap um, mm -hmm. or an integrity breach. When one person does things one way and another wants to do them another way, um, and, and that's viewed as a, as a breach. And so it, it's small and subtle, but it really is at the end of the day, um, not at the end of the day, at the start of the day, uh, about human connection and, and communication. Yeah, it doesn't even seem like a less lesser uh, aspect of culture to sort of set explicit goals. Like sometimes the problem in culture is the explicit, sometimes it's the implicit. You can't really tell uh, beforehand. Absolutely, and and oftentimes it's a it's a combination of both, right? So yeah. you there, I, I view culture as like a a control. Uh, center where you have knobs that you can you, you can tweak and dial and and you have levers that you can say let's try this oh that doesn't work turn that off turn this on this louder this more quiet um, and it's really about that that nuance and that attention to the control center 
Yeah. And just to clarify, uh, because one word that was like at least uh, explicitly missing from from your hierarchy or your listing was the like why of the company. Is it kind of like the and is it encircling everything? That's like because you know from from the why of course derives basically everything. Uh, without a clear purpose of the company, you can't have any values. You can't have a mission. You people don't know what they're working with. So is it like is it integrated with the founders, or is it just like it's basically everywhere uh, along this <laughs> this um, uh, listing? That's an interesting question um, because a lot of people use why as as in their cultural definition. Um, <clears throat> I. And I don't really have a succinct answer on this, um, so I will I will do my best to not get too wordy. Uh, the long but, ones have been good so far. Don't worry, it, <laughs> very very good. Um, thank you for your patience with me. Um, I I believe that the why is deeply embedded in the mission and the vision, and sometimes the why changes. Um, in all cases, all components of culture need to shift and change, um, even values. That's something that I learned early on um, in my experience at Reddit was the, the most effective use of values is to, you know, they are both aspirational and inspirational, but they are used to, to drive change in behavior. And uh, I, I once thought early in my career that values should be your values always and forever. The, you know, this is the, the core, um, you know, it's, it's our integrity component, right? Um, but the reality is, is, is what we are seeing more and more often now is that people are separating values from um, like a code of conduct or a code of ethics. So creating a space where, for, for example, diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging, um, a lot of people want to turn that into a value as, as if it's something we, they, they want to state, they want to make a statement internally, they want to make a statement externally, that these are things that we value. But the reality is, is, is you can't encapsulate diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging into a value that it, you can actually operationalize. But you can make the statement, diversity, inclusion, equity, and belonging are deeply important to us. And in fact, it's a table stake, right? This is something, this is a non-negotiable. We will build a diverse, a inclusive, you know, an equitable uh, workplace that has the feeling of belonging. And, and so you state that somewhere else, but that's not a value. And so when you ask about why, where does the why live? Um, all of these things are fluid. All of these things are constantly evolving and they should be evolving as you, the founder, as, as you, a leader within the organization, are evaluating, are these things driving our business forward? Are we achieving, are we on track to achieve our mission and our vision? And like I said, sometimes that mission and that vision change or have to shift. Um, and, and it's a good and it's a healthy thing. Um, so the why lives in, I mean, you said it best, you should, you should give the long answer. It lives and <laughs> in, in every single part of, of what we do. Um, that should be the reason, like I said, when, when your feet hit the ground out of bed in the morning, the why might be different for you than it is for me. Um, like I, I gave the example earlier about Pixar, like, inviting people into a dark room and hope that they feel something um, wasn't my only why. You know, I, I have two little kids that are in my, my bunker with me. Um, they're a part of my why. 
uh, you know, wanting to, to have a lasting impact on the world and, and be a part of something that is making the world better, that's a part of my why. So I, I think that why should be embedded in most explicitly in the mission and the vision it's woven throughout, you know, the fabric of, of what it is that we're building with our culture. But I also believe that the why is deeply, deeply personal. And it's okay for everyone to have their own why and still show up and, and as the who and the how, as I describe culture. Um, the why doesn't matter. I don't care if every single person sitting at that table showed up for 20 different reasons that are not aligned so long as they know how they're going to get this work done together and they are aligned around the, the value set and, and the, the company mission. Why is important, but it's, it doesn't, it's not important to be individually defined. That's, that's a really that's interesting a really, take. Yeah. really good answer, yeah. yeah. I just by the way, yeah, by the way, there's a great, for anyone interested in, in hearing more about Picture, which at least helped me, there's a great book, I think by Ed Catmullen, uh, he, he wrote a great book about the culture at Pixar and, and the kind of the creative process at Pixar and how it was changed when, and how, how difficult the Pixar journey was as well. So I recommend that to, to everyone. We can link, link the book in the description as well, but uh, that, that's a great one. I, that's what, that's the number one book that I, uh, prescribe to my, my founders in our portfolio companies okay, uh, yeah. by Ed Catmull. Um, and I will tell you this, I actually just had the pleasure of sitting down with him a few weeks ago. Oh, cool. I chat. Um, he's, he's releasing an updated version here in, in the coming months. Um, he, uh, he admitted that he's suffering a little bit of writer's block at the moment. Um, given everything that's happening in the world, he wants to be able to address it in, in the right way. Um, but I am so excited for for the second edition. It's going to be amazing. Yeah, we'll have to invite awesome. him. Uh, that would be that would be a great discussion as well. Uh, he's Absolutely. a legend. Legend. What for a great sure. idea, William. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> uh, but maybe taking it to to more of the startup direction. Um, yeah, as we as we discussed, culture is not is not like a list and it's not a checklist. Uh, even though there's a lot of components you can manage and, and measure, of course, which is very important, but it's still something that kind of emerges and and is set by the examples of the founders. But but when, yeah, like is there culture from the beginning? Um, you know, if you have a you have a team, you co co-found something with when you have one technical founder and one more you know sales marketing oriented founder, and you you put together a a company doing whatever an app, and you you you're just two people. I guess there's like some kind of culture, of course, uh, already present, but it's maybe not you know something you have to explicitly discuss every day and and you know focus on building. It's more maybe about setting ground rules together and 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 figuring out how to, how to work together. But what would is there like some some stage uh, where founders seriously need to start you know thinking about this? Is it from the first hire already, or is it? You know, is there like I understand it's not a like defined line, but you know, at what point would this be relevant for a founder? Yeah, I I mean, obviously I'm biased, and so so take my answer with a grain of salt. I I very genuinely believe um, in setting. You know, if you set out to be a culture first company, you need to do it from day one. Um, and if you have just recently decided to become a culture first founder, uh, day one can be the day that you make that. Um, and that's not to say that, uh, you can't 
be like marginally interested in having a good culture, but I'll think about it at employee number 30 or something, for example, like, like there's no trigger. Um, things become more interesting and more complex at those, those inflection points. So, you know, you can take the old adage of every time you double in size, you're a new company. So, you know, as, as a, as a broad stroke, I would say every time your company doubles in size, you should be pausing and taking, you know, a day to to reflect on your culture and how it's developing. Um, obviously, when you you go from two people to four people, the reflection might be a little shorter uh, because it's less complex at that point. Yeah. But you know, four to eight, eight to sixteen, and and so on. Um, you know, if you spend your day only investigating and reflecting on your culture, you will not be a very successful business. Um, I, I I oftentimes help my founders remember the uh, sustainable business model, which is uh, you have to have a, a good idea, meaning something that people love, need, and want. You have to be able to build it because you can have good ideas all day long, but if you can't build it, it doesn't matter. And the third is you have to be able to monetize. If you cannot make money so that you can continue to build things that people love, need, and want, you don't have a business or a culture to worry about. (laughs) So I oftentimes encourage them to build uh, their, their culture roadmap right alongside their product roadmap. So if their product roadmap is their sustainable business model, right next next to it should be your sustainable uh, culture model. Um, so building in OKRs or KPIs, goal, you know, goaling metrics uh, for both of those things should be synonymous and inclusive. Um, so like I said, in, in the early days, it's just, you know, it's, it's not as complex. It still should be interesting and, and motivating. Um, but for example, you know, a diversity equity, you know, or for example, a, a diversity hiring goal um, when you are two people and you're making your first hire, um, is not, you know, you don't need to have an insane, uh, you know, public statement around diversity. But if it's something that's important to you, again, maybe that's in your 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 rules of citizenship or your code of ethics where you say, hey, we, you know, I recognize that we are two uh, white men building this company. We, and we want to care about diversity. Maybe your first, you know, diversity OKR or culture OKR is, we want to make sure that we have a diverse pipeline uh, for this candidate. You know, we we won't just hire our buddy who is qualified to do the job and we know really well, we're going to have an open application and we're going to do X, Y, and Z. And so a, a lot of times to, to make, um, you know, culture more bite-sized, I will ask uh, my founders for their their OKR list and say, okay, show me your, your goals. And usually they're around, you know, revenue or retention or, um, you know, product market fit. Um, and, I, I take their their OKRs and I say, okay, now give me one sub goal that has to do with the things that you've said that you value. So, you know, whether that is, again, diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging, or that is around, um, you know, building a product that, that has social impact or these things that, that, that drive us, right? All of the, the different parts of our, um, of our culture, um, you know, make, make it more interesting and tie them so closely that it's not a bolt on that, that, the thing that I've seen go wrong so many times in in a company's life cycle is that they will bolt it on culture. Um, they will bolt it on to the side and say, okay, now we care about culture. And then as that car rattles down the road and you hit those bumps and those rocks and those, uh, you know, speed bumps, it, it falls off because it was bolted on. If you, if you integrate it, 
it, it becomes a part of, of what it is that you're building and you recognize that there are trade-offs that you cannot and will not make um, as opposed to, well, you know what, we just made that stupid diversity goal because we, you know, we're feeling social pressure. And so we added that diversity goal onto this, this hire. But the reality is, is we need to make this hire. Otherwise we don't make money. So just go ahead and hire our buddy. Okay, that's fine. And you might still have a successful business. Fine. Uh, but it means that you weren't deeply committed to that diversity goal. You either didn't set it, you didn't clarify it, or you, you didn't mean it. Um, so really investigating your, again, your goaling um, as, as a mechanism to drive and build your, your culture and your product. Yeah. How, uh, as an example, like this is, this is a good explanation for why, like why culture is important and uh, like through the examples of where culture has worked, but then, then maybe, it's always interesting to go with a counterfactual and to see what happens when there is no culture. And apparently you have a, you have a quite a good example when it comes to this in, in Reddit and, and your, your story with them. Can you sort of give a short introduction or rundown of what happened? Sure. Um, so yeah, I, I joined, uh, the Reddit team. Um, gosh, what was that back in 2016? Um, five, five-ish years ago. Um, I guess that math works almost. <laughs> I think so. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's a good one. Um, I, so I joined that team. I, the company had been around for 10 years. Um, I was the very first, um, uh, official, uh, people and culture hire, um, in, in the company's history. And so when you add HR, um, at the executive level, 10 years after a company's existence, uh, you can imagine the amount of debt uh, that there was to, to clean up, organizational debt. How many um, people were employed at that time? Uh, we were 75 people. Um, and uh, Reddit at the time was in the news for all the wrong reasons. Um, every reason you didn't want to be. They, and more importantly, um, from an internal perspective, um, they were a team that had endured a lot of trauma, a lot of trauma together. Um, and so, you know, three CEOs in less than a year, uh, lots of change at the leadership level. Um, you know, the, the product was, our, our users had revolted and staged a blackout. Um, there, there, I mean, there was a lot. To say it was a dumpster fire uh, is an understatement. Um, <laughs> Uh, which is part of the, the reason they, they hired me and they hired um, a number of my other colleagues on the executive team um, at the same time. Uh, they, they really were looking to rebuild and reboot, um, but this time with care and attention. And so one of, one of the, the, the catalysts for that was um, they had just recently invited back their two co-founders, Steve Huffman and Alexis Ohanian, to come back um, and see if they, they could get it together, basically. Um, so at the time, uh, Reddit was and still is um, one of the most popular websites on the internet, um, although it's not often discussed. I think at the time we were like fourth or fifth in, in the US and you know in the low double digits in the teens globally. Um, and what I discovered besides all of the organizational and, and just HR and compliance debt that I walked into, um, uh, 
and to be clear, they they were managing HR from a just a nuts and bolts standpoint. Right. Um, yeah. But from a cultural and human perspective, mm. there there was just much negligence. So again, no one was intentionally causing harm, or no one was defining the culture in a way that was was wrong. No, no one had touched it. It was just hands yeah. off, and uh, and so. Um, the first thing I did was listen. I sat down with every single team member and I just listened. I, you know, I would say 75% of those, those one-on-ones involved tears. Um, again, what I discovered was a, a team in crisis um, and they, they were not in a place to trust. They were not in a place to, to build. They were, they were in survival mode. And so when we think about our, you know, Maslow's hierarchy of needs, they, this team was living at the very bottom of just survival and and trying to get their basic needs met. And so um, it, it shocked me how quickly we were able to start to heal um, and start to operate as, as a functioning team. Um, one of the things that I, I recognized almost immediately that we were missing was everybody had a deep loyalty to the, to the product and to our users, but not to one another, uh, which was bizarre uh, because they were all in, in one office at the time in San Francisco um, here in the financial district. And they, they had very little connection or relation to one another. They, they came in, they built, they refused to wear their, their, you know, the, the whole Silicon Valley, everyone wears your, your hoodie with the logo on it, you know, the, your swag. They wouldn't touch them. No one wanted to be associated with the firm. They came in, they got their paycheck, they were doing it for the users and the users only. Everything was kind of done in the, in the cloak of night. Um, and they were missing this shared identity, the shared identity that you deeply, as humans, we need. If we look again at our hierarchy of needs, those social needs, those belonging needs sit squarely in the middle. So you can't get to the top where you're producing beautiful, innovative products. You can't, you can't get to the height of culture and civilization uh, when, when, you're, when you don't even have a connection to the person that you are sitting next to, um, that you see every single day. And so we started first with just community, which blew my mind. Reddit, that's all we were. Like that's yeah. what I, we build community online. How could we not build it offline? And so um, one technique that, that I used was to model exactly the same behaviors that we were building in our product, the, the, the um, user behaviors that we were you know, in, inspiring and amplifying. I just took those and I said, okay, great. Now we're gonna do this as people together, you and me live. <laughs> um, and it, it was awesome. It was such a good wild ride. Um, so I spent four years uh, there building and rehabilitating that team and then eventually getting to the place where we could scale. And so we grew, um, we, we 10X'd in four years. So uh, they have about 700 employees now, uh, global offices. Um, well, now everyone's global, right? Um, <laughs> but at the time when I left, yeah. that was not the case. And so that was very exciting. Um, and so I, I think that you know, I can say, uh, Steve, uh, you know, the current CEO, um, and, and who was my, my partner and my boss when I was there, um, and Alexis who, you know, I ultimately worked for again and with at initialized, um, all of us will say to this day, it's because we decided to give a shit, a, a shoot. You can shoot. Um, yeah, <laughs> it's fine. <laughs> Doesn't matter. Um, let's say shit. Let's all say shit. Okay. <laughs> we gave a lot of shits, guys. <laughs> we, it was because we cared about our people. It really it came down to that. At the end of the day, we decided to 
show up every day and care about how we were building our culture. Um, it, and it made the, the world a difference. So yes, it's, um, I've seen firsthand uh, the, the power of intentional culture building. So it, it, as you said, it seems so weird when I think about Reddit and I, I know what it's all about. I've been there many times and uh, <laughs> um, yeah, the idea of like that, it goes against what I would picture the Reddit office being like uh, sort of kind of these friends keeping this community up the front page of the internet. Like this is our thing. It's our little thing. Like we, we not, not a little thing, a big thing, but no, it's so, it's so fascinating. Like, what were some of the things that people came in with then? If it wasn't for this sort of general idea of why we're doing not why I, that's not a good word to use. I remember, but, uh, <laughs> but the, the, the how. Yeah, I, I really, um, that was that was part of just like being like a cultural anthropologist coming in and just trying to understand like what really motivated people. Yeah. Um, and a lot of it was this deep, deep commitment to um, to the users, which is a powerful thing. I don't don't get me wrong that that is still a driving force of the culture today um, and an important part of, of our culture and our ability there. I'm sorry, I still say our um, their ability to to build um, you know, a, a, a product as, as powerful as, as Reddit. Um, but the, the challenge was that they were behaving like Redditors. They were behaving like the users that they, they were so deeply loyal to. Um, and Reddit, uh, is unique in, in the world of social, um, media in that you aren't there with your real name. You aren't there with your, you know, Facebook connections from college and your mom and your aunt uh, with your real face uh, plastered on it. This isn't your personal brand. And so the ability and the power, I think, of, of Reddit um, for, better, for, for better and worse is that there, there's a huge amount of anonymity on the platform. Um, and I... I mean, to be, to be honest, uh, I was a Redditor myself before working there. Um, and I think that, you know, sometimes it's not always assumed that there are a lot of women on the platform, um, which by the way, there are. Uh, and I know <laughs> because these were the communities that I was a part of. So, you know, a, a, a really powerful example, um, for me as a user and one of the driving forces for me wanting to take on that, that challenge in my career at that stage was I knew the power of the platform. So, you know, I, I had had my first, uh, baby, um, six years ago, uh, now <laughs> doing the math again, math, not a, <laughs> as the I don't know the math on that. I'm sorry. I can't confirm <laughs> or deny it. <laughs> um, but, uh, when, when he was first born, um, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't the perfect, happy, healthy mother and baby scenario. Um, we, we had some health issues and they were explicitly related to, uh, feeding. And when I had nowhere to turn, you know, the, the post, uh, you know, partum emotional state of being a new mom and the, the overwhelm of be, being a new parent um, and a parent who couldn't feed or, or care for her child um, was absolutely devastating and heartbreaking. And, you know, as he lost weight and significantly to the point where, you know, we, we were going to take him back to the hospital um, because he was so unwell, um, 
I couldn't, you know, I, that, that, those aren't the moments that you go to Instagram and take a picture of, you know, a, a sick baby with saggy skin, you know, babies are supposed to be cheruby and, and plump and, and ripe like me right now. Um, but <laughs> instead to have this sickly baby, um, you know, that was jaundiced and, and looked like a little elephant in saggy skin, um, crying, sobbing in my face as I'm crying and sobbing in his face, you know, both of us feeling very helpless. That's not the Instagram picture that you want to share with the world. That's not the experience. You want to share the, the picture perfect new mom, new baby uh, family photos. Um, and so I didn't, I didn't know where to go. Um, and as I went down, you know, Dr. Google rabbit hole, um, I, I found myself more and more often in Reddit, um, in communities um, in Reddit. And Long story short, uh, they th this community of moms helped diagnose my baby with something that the professionals, the doctors, couldn't. Um, and within 24 hours after one particular mom uh, going out of her way to, to help me, um, I was sharing photos, I was sharing videos. Um, she was like, my son experienced the same thing. She was able to help me get and convince the doctors to, to give us a treatment that, that ultimately, in my opinion, and this is being dramatic, saved my baby's life. Um, and so understanding the power of that community um, and, and the power that it could hold for an individual in, in the sense and the space that that was never an experience, that was never an experience I was going to have on Facebook or Twitter or anywhere else on the internet. That was an experience I was only going to have on Reddit. Um, and so that is the power of what we all were feeling when we showed up to work every day was how do I serve the, the moms, how do I serve the, you know, fill in the blank, whatever your communities are. That's what the employees were feeling. How do I serve these communities best? How do I serve these users best? Um, and each person had their own idea of, of how and why they were going to do that. So if we go back to our culture model of our, you know, our, our company identity and our, our operational identity, our mission, our vision, our values, we didn't have any of that shit. I'm going to say shit again. Now I know I can say it. <laughs> I've had stuff. Um, and so because we had that lack of clarity at the top, we had a mess of a, of a true identity. Our, our, the meat and potatoes of our culture, that, that good stuff was rotten because the team didn't have that clarity up at the, up at the top. And so the majority of, of that first chapter there was really getting alignment and clarity um, and, and putting a lot of communication, um, two-way communication, not just one way, you know, down from the mountain with the tablets, but really investigative um, human work to get clarity around Let's talk about our mission. Let's talk about our vision. Let's identify our core values. Um, and, and then we can talk about inviting other people into this organization, but not until then. Um, so that, that first part was about healing. It was around clarity. Um, and it, it was about human connection community, bringing community offline, um, online, offline. Yeah. Super interesting. Uh, Very interesting, yes. Yeah. Maybe one um, to like... Yeah, one one aspect that's more recent and it's been a challenge probably for, well, a, a, anyone uh, on a personal level, of course, but also for companies uh, more widely, but also especially probably for people in culture uh, sides of things is, of course, um, you know, the remote work explosion that has happened in the past six months. Um yeah, what what are your thoughts on on this whole thing? I mean, <laughs> there's so many ways to go, but but you know, 
we are doing this podcast via Zoom and and you know yeah like this oh, is nice but we're not in the same room we're not yeah. it's not the same yeah and and looking at you know culture and and yeah. you know alignment and being in the same place and and working together it's significantly harder than before yeah i w- i would say you know like with any any big shift um in culture and uh this this is where our funny definition of culture gets to expand even further to this is not just our companies right this is not just talking about one organization or one entity this is talking about like we this is our global culture uh the entire world was thrust into um the this pandemic and not a single one of us had a choice or a vote in the matter and uh what we what we see historically in cultures um in civilizations, um, is when we are are face to face with with things um, on this magnitude, on this scale. What what we see first um, is is how quickly it helps us identify our priorities, right? So in the beginning, when it was just you know madness and and people didn't understand what was going on, there wasn't a whole lot of information about the virus. Uh, we knew that we couldn't be together. Um, the amount of, of companies that were shocked into, I was never open to remote and now I am forced to be remote. Um, those were some interesting transitions, right? Um, industries, not just in, you know, individuals, like I think tech is so, so easy in, in, in our little bubble. It's so easy to be like, everything's remote, remote forever <laughs> because that industry can. And, and, and luckily, right. Um, but not every job you can do from, from Zoom, um, which I'm personally grateful for. I think that people uh, make things far more interesting. Um, I love being live. I hate being virtual. Um, but I think that there are benefits. So, you know, I, I think that through this forced prioritization that, that we've seen throughout history um, and the impacts that that has, you know, on politics, on economics, on um you know, now our environment, um, though the way in which, you know, social justice and, and those impacts are are being felt, particularly here in America, um, we are not going to come out of this the same. Like there's, there's no going back. There, there's no anything. And I refuse to use the term new normal, uh, but we are emerging as individuals that are changed as companies that are changed, as industries that are changed, and as a global civilization and culture has changed. Um, I'm personally, uh, I choose optimism um, in this. I, I choose to believe that the the benefits of this new distributed remote um, w- way of engagement is going to be better for us. Um, in particular, I think about how it's going to impact diversity, um, who we are engaging with um, as employers. Um, I think it has massively opened up our talent pools in a really exciting and incredible way. Um, So from a diversity hiring standpoint, from an inclusion and retention standpoint. So, you know, a lot of people have relocated, um, particularly here in the U.S. A lot of people have gone to be closer to where their families are. So I think that we're going to see a, a renaissance of of the village for families, for young families, for multi generational living, and just I, when I think about the wisdom that comes with that um, from a business perspective, you know, sitting, um, you know, my generation, my mother and my grandmother fought for me to 
sit in the role that I have as a woman, um, you know, without their efforts, like I, I would, you know, they'd probably have five more babies and be sitting, uh, you know, in, in my house suckling and cleaning, which is not really what I feel I was meant to do. <laughs> um, but I, the, the wisdom that will come from bridging those generational gaps um, and, and supporting the villages um, to allow us to, to focus on things that I personally think are important, you know, our communities that exist, um, you know, between children, childcare, healthcare, all of these things are going to be impacted by what's happening in the world right now. You know, 2020 is going to be a very, very thick, juicy chapter in the history books. Um, and I'm so excited to see all of these incredible entrepreneurs and innovators and leaders out in the world that are are embracing the change and are going to ensure that we we really do take advantage of you know a lot of the the hardships that we are experiencing right now um, and make some some changes for the better. So that was a way bigger answer to what about remote work? Uh, yes, remote work. Um, I do think that it it will be hard. I think that we will miss people. I do not think that offices will be empty and and major you know metropolitan areas are going to become ghost towns. That just isn't in human nature. Um, my hope is that you know I I live here in San Francisco. Um, I hope that what we see again is this renaissance of of culture and food and music and art and not just one thing, uh, meaning tech or tech workers, um, you know, finance had its boom, tech had its boom. Um, let's reintegrate and, and be, uh, take advantage, like I said, and, and be optimistic about the ways in which we can reemerge from, from these bunkers as um, better people and hopefully as, as better organizations. There's no way we're going to interrupt these answers. Yeah, that's why we're not saying anything. Yeah, these are really good. Yeah, we we could we could exit the podcast. We can just cut away our parts and then just have a brilliant, brilliant flow of answers. No, but, inner work. Uh, well, this has been super fun, guys. I I really nice. do appreciate yeah. your patience with me and and my ramblings. But I I apparently I woke up in a mood to talk. So thank you. <laughs> Luckily for us and luckily for the luckily listeners, for us, I, yeah. I feel it's been it's been a true pleasure. Um, it's been lovely. Thank you, Caitlin. And, and we're looking forward to to see where you're going next and hear hear all about that as well. Yes, so. absolutely. I'm I'm excited. I'm excited to share with you all when we can. Um, and I I'm really looking forward to um, a a more in depth uh, partnership with with the slush community. Um, I I have. Uh, I've been to to the, the conference once, um, and that was enough uh, to to um, inspire me. I'm very, very grateful for the Slush community. I'm so impressed and inspired by what you all are building together and watching it grow, um, including this podcast. I, I think that the way you all are adapting in this new world is, is pretty phenomenal, too. So um, please consider me an, an advocate, an ally, um, and a partner in all of your endeavors. Um, and I'm really excited in this next chapter to, to take that even further. Sounds Thank amazing. You for those words. We'll definitely do that. Yeah. And uh, yes. To everyone who watched or listened to this episode, thank you so much for for staying to the end. And remember to subscribe if you want more of these episodes on a weekly basis and more fantastic wisdom. But without yes. further ado, thanks and see you next week. Stay safe, guys. Thank Bye-bye. you. Bye-bye. 
I hope you enjoyed your visit to that conversation as much as we did. Now, if you want to stay updated and keep in touch with us, please subscribe to us on YouTube, follow us on Spotify, subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts and all other podcast platforms. We're also on Twitter, Instagram, and then Facebook. You guessed it, Soak by Slush. Thank you people for listening. Bye-bye.